0: And now, the good fight with Yasha Monk. My name is Alex Trembath, and I'm the deputy director of the Breakthrough Institute, which is a think tank in Berkeley, California, focused on technological solutions to environmental problems. And I recently published a piece in Persuasion titled Cars Are Here to Stay. So despite the problem with cars and with suburban sprawl, they remain extremely popular. Over 85% of Americans commute to work by car overwhelmingly alone. And that's compared to only 5% of Americans who use public transit and less than 1% who bike to work. And while the work of environmental researchers and advocates like myself has proven relatively easy to do remotely, most jobs are not so easily distributed. By the end of summer 2021, only 13% of Americans were still working remotely, which is down from a high of 35% in May of 2020, right after the lockdown started. I'm an advocate for climate action, and I personally live in a very dense, walkable neighborhood in Oakland, California, which I love. But the way that I increasingly see other, especially young environmental researchers and advocates talk about density, about transportation, about housing has kind of rubbed me the wrong way. So the way I see it, the progressive left has increasingly turned fully against cars and the suburbs as a sort of main villain in the fight against climate change. And it makes a little sense, obviously. Transportation is now the leading cause of carbon emissions in the United States. People don't like their commutes, etc. But I think this is an example of climate advocates taking the lifestyle and aesthetics that they enjoy and frankly the lifestyle and aesthetics that i live out and pretending that everyone in the country or everyone in the world can or should want to live how they do in dense urban areas working flexible jobs that are accessible by bike and public transit so you can read the whole piece cars are here to stay at persuasion i hope you enjoy it and i hope it's thought provoking for you and if you are interested you can reach me at a trembath on twitter Alex Trembath's piece, called Cars Are Here to Stay, Real Progress on Climate Change Will Require Innovations That Some on the Left Won't Like, was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion, and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community.
1: My guest today is Roosevelt Montas. Roosevelt is a senior lecturer at Columbia University, and he has a really interesting life story, which he writes about in a memoir called Rescuing Socrates, how great books changed my life and why they matter for a new generation. Roosevelt came to New York City from a small and poor village in the Dominican Republic at the age of 12, and he stumbled upon... On top of a dumpster, a book containing the dialogues of Plato, and really fell in love with the life of the mind and with the life of ideas. We had a really nice conversation about the way in which ideas can inspire students across history and across culture, the importance of a true liberal arts education, and why we should reject the kinds of constrictive ideas of identity, which would somehow suggest that Socrates should be relevant to a white American today, but not to somebody like Roosevelt, who grew up in the Dominican Republic. It was a personal, but also a deep conversation. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. Roosevelt Montas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Yasha. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about your story, which is really interesting and powerful, I think. You grew up in the Dominican Republic, you came to New York as a kid, and then you tell this moving story of how a set of books and a set of authors changed your life. So tell us a little bit about your childhood and how you first came into
2: contact with these books. Sure, thank you. You know, I'm I'm Dominican, I was born in the Dominican Republic and came to New York in the mid-80s as sort of the earlier part of a huge wave of immigration from the Dominican Republic that's still going strong, all kind of built in the legal infrastructure of the 1965 Family Reunification Act. So there's just kind of long chains of migration by marriage and family. I was 12 years old. Well, I was two days shy of my 12th birthday, so kind of functionally 12 years old. Came to Queens, not speaking English, and uh, under, you know, kind of severely resource constraints, right? I guess that's another way of saying very poor. I grew up in a small rural village. Sometimes I say that it was kind of in the 19th century that I grew up because we didn't have many of the really amenities of modern life, like appliances, TV or telephone or stove, refrigerator, paved roads. And it was really kind of a little agricultural society there, a town
1: so, coming to New York wasn't just a sort of cultural shock and a linguistic shock, but it really was an economic shock, right? You were suddenly in a, in a huge city with all of the excitement and all of the things that might be scary as a kid when you first arrived, coming from really a village.
2: Exactly. And it was primarily scary. There's, you know, a kind of profound cultural uprooting that anybody who goes from one society to another experiences. And that was compounded by the fact that I didn't have the language compounded by the fact that I was 12 years old. That's a hard age for anybody. And the fact that we lived in a very precarious situation. My mother had a minimum wage job in a garment factory, which she lost shortly after my brother and I joined her. So we spent some years very much on the margins and on the edge without a sense of what would happen next. And my family didn't go to college. My mother didn't even finish high school. My father didn't even attend high school. So we didn't have a good way to orient ourselves here. Now that is in some ways typical of many of My acquaintances and relatives and fellow Dominican immigrants, that immigration wave I described before, it was largely a wave of poor immigrants, in some sense, economic exiles, people who were fleeing the corruption and disorder of Dominican society after a period where the doors were closed. And it was really once the doors to immigration opened up, it began this huge flow. So, in some ways, it's not atypical but it certainly was not easy. And it was just a series of great fortunes that landed me where I live today. And the key episode of that, which I tell in the book, was my relationship to books, was finding this volume of Plato's dialogues in a garbage pile next to my house and kind of reading that book both awakened me to kind of the life of the mind, kind of possibilities of an intellectual life and of a source of meaning and orientation, kind of existential philosophical orientation that was in some ways, a refuge to me. And it also initiated a relationship in my high school with a teacher that turned out to be very, very important to me.
1: You've given us a sense of general life circumstances when you came to New York. So I guess I never quite understand as an immigrant under less difficult circumstances who didn't do middle or high school here, I never quite understand the American school system, but I understand it's about when you start middle school or something like that. What was that educational journey like at first. So presumably those English classes, I imagine that relatively quickly you became a kind of translator for your family as often happens in those circumstances where presumably your ability to pick up the language at 12 was much faster than that of your parents, I would imagine. And so you probably have to help them orient as well. What was that experience like in school and sort of what happened, I guess, up till the moment when you found this book?
2: Yeah. So I went to the local middle school, IS61 in Queens, and it was a Again, in some way a typical school in that it was overcrowded, overburdened. I was in the bilingual program, which is probably even less well resourced and overcrowded than other parts of the school. And the bilingual education in New York City means primarily that you're educated in your native language, in this case Spanish. There are enough Spanish speakers that are very large and robust bilingual education program with intense English instruction. So your subject matter, main subjects, math and science and history etc are done primarily in spanish with a lot of reinforcement of key vocabulary etc in english and then very intensive esl english as a second language instruction that worked very well for me that is i learned english fairly quickly fairly effectively it doesn't work for a lot of people there is a history or a pattern where people enter the bilingual education program never leave it or their language instructions comes at the expense of just moving forward in their academic subjects etc and indeed, I quickly became a translator for my family, not just linguistically, but navigating the bureaucracies of New York City and the culture of the United States. Just I remember endless hours at various kind of social service agencies, welfare applications and housing assistant and food stamps and health care at the hospitals. Just grueling and humiliating. I mean, one of the lessons I draw from that experience is just how humiliating it is to depend and to go through the bureaucracies. The bureaucracies for public assistance, you know, I know them firsthand in New York City. I don't imagine that they are extraordinarily different elsewhere, but they are just personally degrading in a scandalous way that any group of people that were Socially empowered would really not tolerate, but it does kind of take advantage of the helplessness of people who seek those services to provide something that's quite dehumanizing. And you can see aspects of this in the public school system. And one of the reasons why public school system so often fails is because students don't feel themselves to be treated with kind of dignity that they know they deserve. So they turn against schooling. They turn against instruction and develop a kind of adversarial and hostile attitude to the entire project. It's kind of criminal that we do that. And again, this is not just specifically New York City. You know, I am the product of New York City public education and feel extraordinarily grateful for the possibilities that it opened for me. Nonetheless, there is much about the system that is predictably designed for failure.
1: And obviously, we should bear in mind that your story is extraordinary, both in how you succeeded and probably just in how talented you were. But what happens to you in the system? So you're 12, you go into this bilingual education system. You know, it's interesting that you said you found this book by coincidence on a dumpster. I mean, is there a recognition relatively quickly by teachers that you're smart and engaged and talented and they sort of try to push you and try to give you opportunities? Or are you sort of mostly ignored in the classroom? And, you know, thank God we don't have to worry about him. He seems to be going on fine. What does your intellectual development look like up until the moment when you find this book? Yeah. It is something of a combination of both. On the one
2: hand, you want to not be noticed. You want to kind of be lost in the crowd, which was very easy to do. You don't want to stick out. But then there are some individuals that sometimes I describe it by saying that I felt seen by them. There are some individual teachers who, over and above the requirements of their teaching, just kind of notice you and find a way to acknowledge and cultivate something that they recognize in you. I should say that I was not a standout student. I was not a star. Uh, I was a good student, but I was not at the top of my class. I was near the top, but there were a handful of students that were better than I was, that got better grades, were more dedicated. I was intellectually curious. I cared about big ideas. In some ways, I was a misfit, kind of a nerd, socially insoluble in the environment. And in the long run, that ended up being helpful to me because I I think that there were distractions and social outlets that I didn't have that then focused my energies on books and on learning and on a kind of self-cultivation. But I do like to emphasize the fact that it was not my extraordinariness that accounts for the kind of life I had lived. And I feel that if the right encouragement conditions and opportunities were made available to dozens of my peers would have had careers as intellectually expansive and accomplished in many different ways than I did. As we all well know, success is something that is built on a whole series sets of social conditions and encouragements. And I happen to find those in idiosyncratic ways, ways that, that were not necessarily built into the system.
1: So you said that you discovered I African discourses by Plato and That really got you engaged, and then that led to a relationship with a teacher who sort of encouraged that as well. So you see this book on a dumpster. What made you pick it up, and what was the experience of reading it like, and what did all of that lead to? You know, I should
2: mention, I think there's one important condition, one experience in my childhood. I grew up in the Dominican Republic with a father who is still alive, but he never came to the United States. He was politically active in a kind of Marxist left-wing armed resistance to the strong man in the Dominican Republic, Joaquin Balaguer. And I grew up surrounded by ideas and debates. And even though there were not books in my house, my father was always reading books and he never kept books. There were no bookshelves in my house with any kinds of collections, but my father was always reading. It's a great kind of self-taught intellectual. So I had an orientation towards books and ideas. I sort of knew that there was an answer there. There was a path there to social relevance and to the narrowness of the experience of the world in which I find myself in the United States. Um, so one evening, um, you know, one, one thing I, I point out in, in the book I wrote about this is that Americans throw away a lot of perfectly good stuff. And it's something that is kind of legendary in the Dominican Republic. The New York is a place where we can just walk the streets and look at the garbage piles and find all kinds of perfectly good things, you know, furniture and appliances and clothing. Well, there were this large pile of books. Some of the books were quite beautiful, and I only picked up two volumes. My English wasn't good enough to really, and I wasn't a reader, but there were volumes that were, as it turns out, part of a series at Harvard called the Harvard Universal Classics. They're kind of leather-bound, gilded-edged pages, very kind of stately, and books that were clearly published to be placed in pretentious bookshelves. In the library room or some country club where nobody ever reads them, Exactly. And I'm sure that that set that I found dumped there, many, many have eventually been perched this way. But they really caught my attention. So I grabbed them, I brought them home and started reading Plato's dialogues. And the dialogues contained there include the Apology of Socrates and the Credo, where Socrates turns down an invitation to flee prison and escape the death sentence he has been given. Extraordinarily compelling stuff. And I use those dialogues today to teach every summer high school students who are kind of like me, low income, mainly immigrants, first generation, college bound. I teach those same dialogues to them. And I see the students that is experienced something like what I experienced, that is being captivated by this figure and being kind of invited to a way of thinking about the world, a way of thinking about politics, a way of thinking about their social reality. That in many cases is new and extraordinarily empowering. So, you know, haltingly, I started reading this, met this teacher at school who saw me in the hallway reading the book, approached me. He got very excited. He was Greek himself and had a classical education at Princeton, had ended up teaching high school after retiring from a career in business and driven by really a sense of mission. And so often it happens that it's individuals like this that kind of make the difference in one's life, whether you are someone like me who didn't have access to many resources or someone who just has access to every kind of resource, it's still individuals that tend to do that profound work of reorientation or of impacting you.
1: And what was most important in the role that he played? Was it just having somebody to talk to about those ideas and somebody who perhaps could help you place them in context a little bit and tell you a little bit more about them, help you, you know, teach some of these texts to you? Or was it the sort of practical advice that he may have had, helping you think about setting your ambitions to get into a good college? A lot of it was simply the relationship. He was never my teacher. I never had a
2: class with him, but we would often stay after school. And I remember when I was in high school, one of the things that was going on was the the first Gulf War after Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait. And George Bush Sr. got this coalition and I remember digesting the news and understanding kind of the geopolitics of this and understanding what NATO was. And we would just have these very extraordinarily rich conversations, kind of philosophical, politically, historical. And part of what it did was provide a kind of emotional support. It provided a kind of a sense of, I have here someone, an access to a different kind of world, someone who kind of cares about me, someone who is processing my world with me. So it seems to me that a lot of it was kind of this emotionally nourishing space that he gave me. The fact that there is an adult who pays attention to you, that there's an adult who seems to see you, right? Who seems to care and mind you as an individual. Then there were some practical things. He was the person who encouraged me to apply to Columbia. He was the only person to read my personal statement. I applied to college kind of entirely on my own and, first of all, did not know that a personal statement is something that you should really pour yourself over and work very hard on. He read one draft and proved it a lot by
1: his comments, but that was it, that one reading that was all the intervention I got. Which, by the way, as a real side note, because this is not what this conversation is about, is one of the reasons why I find it absolutely foolish that it's easy to measure the bias of the SAT and the way in which more privileged people might have higher SAT scores, but to think that something like a personal essay, which takes so much cultural knowledge for what people are looking for, which obviously gives so much scope for just the ordinarily privileged with you know highly educated parents to, to get help, let alone the people who hire very expensive college essay editing services, right? The idea that this is somehow going to be social equalizer to base college admissions more on the college essay than on something like the SAT. To me, it's just one of the strange, naive ideas that go unchallenged in this moment.
2: Yes, it's utterly untenable. Just on that same digression, one of the things I do in this summer program I teach for high school students is I teach them the summer between their junior and senior year. So senior year, they're applying to college. So my high school students... I match with some college students who are taking a class I teach in the fall on American political thought, which has a service component. And the service component consists of working one-on-one with some of my summer high school students on their college essay. And this extraordinary thing happens that Columbia students, for the most part, are expert at getting into a good school.
1: Whatever else they may or may not be expert on, but they certainly are expert at how to work the system and get into a good school. Exactly.
2: Exactly. How to sell themselves, how to craft an image of themselves that is compelling. The high school students have no idea about that. And they often have extraordinary lives and don't know that their lives are extraordinary. So you put these two together to craft their personal statements. And it's been extraordinarily fruitful on both ends, right? It's been revelatory both to the high school students and to the college students. I've had situations where one of my Columbia students has a younger sibling, the same age, you know, high school senior who's applying to college. And they're seeing these two application processes, the kid they're working with from a low-income first-generation family and their own sibling. And it drives home a reality that you point to about the kind of built-in inequities of the college education system. Now, it isn't that there are easy answers, you know, and this is one of the criticisms of the SAT, which obviously is misused and biased towards all kinds of privilege. And I, one, would love to get rid of the SAT, but what do we replace it with, right? Do we go back to the old, you know, your letter of recommendation from your headmaster or what school you went to or your personal statement, you know, what measures can we find? So it's not an easy question, but certainly privilege pervades the selection process of college. But anyway, this teacher was really both in practical advice, things like that, encouragement, but also building me up intellectually for what has turned out to be just a life that is passionately engaged with ideas and texts and readings, not only because I'm a college professor, but just the kind of life I live apart from that professional pursuit.
1: When did you start thinking of that as a real option for what to do with a life, which is to say that I think even a lot of people who come from material security, who, you know, know that they're never going to have to worry too much about money, even people who may have parents who, you know, went to grad school and so on and so forth often don't think of I could go and be a college professor, I could actually go and make my life about ideas in that profound a way. Was that something that sort of relatively early on you realized you wanted to do? Is that something that once you got to Colombia and I'm sure that was disorienting and I'm sure you struggled a little bit, but you sort of clearly realized at some point, hey, I'm pretty good at this and perhaps I can do that. Or how do you go from, hey, I love these ideas and so on to this can actually be my life. Yeah, it began to come into view quite
2: early. That is what began to come into view was that I wanted to find a way to make a living by thinking and reading and talking about what I was reading. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know if that meant being a professor, being a writer of some sort, being even some kind of lawyer or reporter, just did not know what that meant. And as I approached the end of college, it was very clear to me that I wasn't done, that I had kind of begun my education and I was not prepared to stop. I was not prepared to go and find a job. And In this sense, having grown up poor was a bit of an advantage because even while being in college, having a work-study job, which I did all through college, I had to work 20 hours a week and in the dean's office of the School of General Studies and full times in the summer in the same office, I was making more money and was living kind of more comfortably. I had health insurance. I had a meal plan. I was kind of set up. And I did not feel the ambition to go out and start making money, to go and get a job. I was perfectly fine continuing that relative student poverty, which felt quite an achievement to me as it was. So when I was approaching graduation, I decided to apply to graduate schools, not really thinking of necessarily a life as a professor. You know, I understood enough about what life in academia meant. I, for example, felt very committed to living in New York City. I couldn't emotionally, psychologically handle the idea of moving to some place that I had no reason to be, except that I had a job there to be a professor in college. So I went to graduate school because I wanted to think, I wanted to read, I wanted to write. And then I would figure out how I would make a living, including possibly being a professor, but not necessarily. And that actually lifted a huge burden of my time in graduate school. Sometimes I think that I was the only happy graduate student of my cohort because everybody was just angling to find one of the few jobs in the humanities that there could be and kind of organizing their whole scholarship and what they read and what they wrote and who they talked to and what conferences they went to. What they did was organized around attaining this fairly narrow and rare prize that most people were not going to attain. And I was kind of liberated from all of that. That wasn't what I was there to do. And that has meant that even though I'm an academic, I've had a very unconventional career. I don't have tenure at Columbia I've just published this book that doesn't engage with my real academic specialty. I'm an Americanist. I do American political thought. But this book I just wrote talks about Plato and Augustine and Freud and Gandhi. So the life of thinking and writing and talking about ideas came into view fairly early on, but not this particular path that my career has turned out to be. And it's still quite under construction, as it were. You know, it's not clear to me where I'm going to be five or 10 years from now.
1: I think that's fascinating in terms of what it says about how to stake freedom out for yourself. I was struck by some of the same thing you're talking about. It's not exactly the same thing. So, you know, I grew up with much more access to culture and ideas. I mean, it sounds like your dad actually, his story reminds me in some way of my grandfather's story who grew up in a village of what was then Poland close to Lviv, later became Ukraine and may terribly soon be Russia, that he was a communist as a teenager and he did not have a university education. I don't know how much of a high school education he had, but he was very engaged with ideas. And so obviously there's a parallel there, but when I look at my mom, who's a classical musician, she's a conductor in some ways, in terms of cultural or social capital, I grew up with a lot of it, but economically, I have a single mom. There were years when she was doing very well in her career and we had a decent amount of money. There was years when she wasn't doing all that great in her career for one reason or another. And we really did not have very much money at all. And what it means to be middle class, even in a place like Germany, actually is just a little bit less plush than what it means to be middle or upper middle class in the United States. And so I have been struck throughout my career by friends of mine or acquaintances of mine having a sense that they have to make a certain amount of money in order to be able to live. I remember a colleague of mine in graduate school whose politics were actually very far left and who thought of herself as a socialist saying, well, nobody can live with under, you know, six figures in New York City. And I remember thinking, you know, most people live in New York City, make a lot less than six figures, and clearly it's possible. But that's because, you know, she came from not an especially rich, but another middle class American family that took certain kinds of things for granted. And so it's just interesting how in your case, and in some ways, in my case, not being used to that kind of wealth, not being used to that kind of material comfort actually gives you liberty. Now, obviously, it also depends on each person's attitude towards money and each person's attitude towards how to lead life. But so there's something interesting in that, I think.
2: Yeah, it can cut you loose from expectations and from a kind of narrow drive, a certain notion of achievement. You know, what would success mean for me? Well, you know, graduating from college meant success. Staying out of jail meant success. Having a job meant success. Anything beyond that was just kind of icing on the cake, as it were. So it did provide a certain kind of liberation and freedom, including a kind of intellectual freedom, because it's very clear to me from very early on in graduate school that the kinds of paths available through scholarship for kind of a livelihood were just not interesting to me. There was something that struck me as hollow or fraudulent about developing a highly narrow specialization full of scholarship But actually, with very little substance, full of scholarly apparatus, kind of academic apparatus, but at the center of it, there being something that matters very little to the world and to anyone who is not already professionally invested in that. So it seemed to me, no, that's not what I want to do. That's not what I came to graduate school for. That's not what I have gotten from where I've been to where I am to do. I am not going to spend my best energies and devote my life to getting tenure. That's not worth it.
1: And this, to me, is the great tragedy of a lot of intellectual talent in the United States and a lot of intellectual talent at universities, probably around the world, given the incentives, where people come and pursue a PhD because they're excited about ideas and they're excited about questions in the world. And then they're professionalized. Exactly. Graduate school kills it. <laughs> and you're told, hey, you know, perhaps you're interested in X and, and thinking about it in this way, but... To get a job, you really should be studying why and doing it in that way. And most people end up in one way or another doing that. And I think the the promise of tenure is really pernicious in that way. For reasons of academic freedom, I support tenure, but I feel very ambivalent about it because it's this sort of you're in the desert and there's this oasis of absolute security and you know absolute freedom that you're always looking at and you're always walking towards it. But, you know, given the timescales involved, by the time you get there, you're usually, you know, 40 years old or something like that. And if you've been used at that point for seven or eight years of grad school and three years of postdoc and seven years of a tenure clock, so let's say 15 to 20 years to, you know, do the work you're supposed to do rather than the work that you're really excited by, you're not suddenly going to turn around and pursue your real interests once you have tenure. You're
2: already invested in a professional identity, colleagues and publication and institutional structures that drive you. And that's why, you know, I see one justification for tenure and it's the one you said, it's academic freedom. And that often means that the tenured protections allow you to raise uncomfortable questions especially about the institution where you're in. And I think that's hugely important, ought to be protected, but it's very little used in that way. That is, it's rare that even tenure tenured professor that will raise these uncomfortable questions to the administration, to the governance of the university, and politically too. The downsides are quite significant. To me, it's not a perfectly obvious equation that it balances out the tenure system as we have it today. It's worth the cost. And it seems to me that there are real ways to ensure academic freedom That might evade some of the negative aspects of the existing tenure system. But I guess that would be another conversation.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. But we'll discuss that over lunch or over beer, if you like. You know, there's idealists who think that ideas move the world, there's materialists who think that people are motivated by, you know, self interest of an economic kind most of the time. I think I'm a dinner partyist. I think most of the time, at least the huge swath of the upper middle class is motivated by, you know, what will play well at the next dinner party they go to and what will make sure we don't get shouted at at the next dinner party they go to. But that's also a different conversation. One thing that's really interesting in this is that you talked about your experience with your language instruction. There is a strong pedagogical ideology at the moment of culturally responsive teaching, where the idea is that you want to make the material you teach relevant to the cultures and particularly the identities of the people who you're teaching. I think there's versions of that, which I find perfectly sensible and appropriate. But often the implicit assumption is, you know, to put it starkly, you know, a poor boy from the Dominican Republic whose parents didn't have a lot of education is just not going to be interested in Plato and we're not going to be interested in Gandhi and we're not going to be interested in Augustine. So, you know, let's give them some contemporary, you know, anime set in the Dominican Republic and that they'll be able to relate to. And there may be wonderful contemporary anime set in the Dominican Republic of high literature quality. I have no problem with that. But I guess, how do you feel about this way of thinking what and how you should teach and how does your story sort of intersect with that? As with many other kind of pedagogical
2: theories or notions, you often begin with a important insight. Um, And then you formalize it into a curriculum or a pedagogical ideology. Sometimes this becomes a political kind of a policy question. And then you end up with a complete disservice to the students, a complete kind of monster. And I see especially this idea of culturally responsive teaching to be extremely kind of fraught. Yes, you should take into account the kind of the cultural wealth and knowledge and richness of your pupil in organizing how you will present the information and draw and build on that when it's done well, when it's done thoughtfully, is entirely beneficial, appropriate, overall a good thing, a very powerful thing. But that so easily devolves into a stereotyped cardboard cutouts of what this culture is or what is culturally relevant. You know, I often hear people say, my home culture of the Dominican Republic. Oh, in the Dominican Republic, if you go to a lunch and somebody gives you a plate of food and you don't eat it all, that is going to be offensive to the host. As if cultures existed with this rigid regimen and that the person that's serving you dinner will not realize that you're an American, that you don't understand the culture and will just interpret your behavior through this very rigid cultural paradigm. You know, there's all kinds of caricatures that easily play into that by sometimes well-meaning thinkers or practitioners, then there is this other aspect of it that is very dangerous that you alluded to, this condescending notion that people who are from certain cultures or say racial minorities or ethnic minorities somehow don't have the human apparatus to connect to big fundamental questions that some other student does, or some other individual does. So my wife is an American white woman. And this culturally responsive approach to teaching easily falls into something like the idea that, you know, Dante is appropriate for her, but not for me. You know, give Roosevelt, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and Junot Diaz, and give Lee, Plato, and Aristotle. And there is a reductionist, a narrowness, and ultimately a condescension to that attitude that pervades education. That is, I think we have done more damage than good by incorporating that type of thinking into our curriculum. I, as a high school student, found Plato to be very affirming. I found that, you know, Plato affirmed the deepest aspects of my identity. And by Plato, I mean Socrates, really. At least the figure that Plato gives us of Socrates. Socrates. That had nothing to do with my ethnicity and with my language and with my culture. It had something to do more fundamentally with my sense of self, with my the possibilities of living in a society. Um, this happens over and over again, that I see students are able to connect with, say, Dante. Not because Dante is Italian, not because he's rooted in medieval Catholic theology, not because he's into like Florentine politics. There's something else in Dante that is the point of connection that makes Dante no closer to an Italian-American than to a Dominican-American.
1: Well, one of the things that I find weird about this, as you're saying, is that the logical implication of, you know, only Spanish or Latino literature will appeal to somebody from the Dominican Republic, as you're saying, is that, you know, only English people are truly going to get Shakespeare, which is deeply offensive. But when it comes to somebody like Socrates, it's also the weird metaphysics that's going on. I mean, Socrates lived so far ago in a society that was so different from either the New York of 1985 or the Dominican Republic of 1985, you know, which of those two societies was closer to Socrates? I have no way to begin to answer that question, right? So, there's sort of an odd idea where you think about a trans-historical white identity where suddenly, you know the kid with roots that are not at all in Greece, living in a highly technologically, economically complex and diverse society in the 21st century, somehow is supposed to be just like Socrates in terms of their circumstances, where somebody living, you know, a thousand miles away on an island that may be very different from New York today, but You know, on some levels it's more similar, in some levels it's more different. Who knows, right? Like, it's just such a weird way of thinking about what it is to be human and how our contemporary identities map onto, you know, the past or map onto other cultural or geographical contexts. And, you know, the sad thing is that it involves a certain kind of
2: reductionism and essentialism that is invented historically as a tool of oppression. You know, the categories, this notion of whiteness and blackness and this cultural essentialism develops in the service of racial supremacism, of exploitation, of enslavement, of absolute dehumanization of the other. And today, the logic is adopted so easily into a discourse that poses itself as progressive, that poses itself as anti racist, that poses itself as social justice oriented, and which I don't really question the intentions of people who advance this, but I do think that they are making a fundamental mistake and reproducing the categories that are the exact same tools that produce the oppression that they're fighting.
1: Yeah, I've been doing a lot of reading to understand this identity-based ideology which has become so powerful today. And I think one of the crucial hinge points in this is actually a colleague of yours at Columbia, Gertrude Chakravorty Spivak's. Notion of strategic essentialism, which you know she sort of throws out there in an interview in the nineteen eighties, and she's been critical of how it's been used. So I don't want to put it on her exactly, but that seems to me the characteristic move today, where somebody who's quote unquote woke would say, "Well, no, 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 no. We understand that all of these identities are socially constructed. We always emphasize that they're socially constructed." But because of the strategic choice, which is understandable in itself, of saying people are oppressed along the lines of these identities and therefore to fight back, it's really important that they organize around the lines of these identities, sort of to all intents and purposes, we treat these identities as though the essentialist account of them were right, as though there is this trans-historical whiteness which somehow connects Socrates' you know, to somebody who comes from a WASP family in the United States, but not to you. And so I wonder sort of what your thoughts are on how we should be thinking about identity, where clearly, you know, I love it when I have students who come from all kinds of different backgrounds of different life experiences. They can bring that in, and that is an enrichment of a classroom, absolutely. And clearly, as you've been talking about, your story informs who you are and how you see the world, but it doesn't limit it. So how do we sort of combine this, appreciation for where people come from, what the story is, how it informs them, with a rejection of a kind of essentialism that would say, Socrates is not for you. Right.
2: You know, Gayatri Spivak is a friend and someone who I respect, but she can talk about strategic essentialism. And I think there is a very kind of rarefied, theoretical, very heady world that kind of, A, understands what that is and uses it self-consciously as a strategy. But when you get down to mass organizing and mass movement and the discursive regime that increasingly dominates our public sphere, nobody knows what strategic essentialism is and nobody thinks in those terms. The kind of nuance of, I will provisionally, strategically Organize around this category in order to mobilize mass movement and get something done while remembering that it is a kind of a fiction. That has not, and I don't see it really translating into politics. And what we have today is the essentialism without the strategy. Contemporary social justice warriors, by and large, believe the essentialism and are not using it strategically, but are fully committed to
1: this essentialist notion of identity. My sense is what we have is essentialism with lip service to the socially constructed nature. Yeah. Right. You will often hear in those kind of progressive spaces, oh, race is socially constructed. But that's nearly like a sort of mantra that then gets ignored for practical purposes.
2: There's another aspect to, I think, the ideological posture that uses and pays lip service to strategic essentialism, which is a posture that says that all that matters is power. That is, that you have no standard of truth or of goodness or of virtue or of justice to refer to and to kind of triangulate from that all there is is a contest for power and anything that allows you to exercise or obtain power is fair game. So whether we are essentializing and dehumanizing, if we do it in the service of acquiring power, then it's fair game because all it boils down to in the end is power. Again, I think that that is in some way a adoption of a kind of an ideological premise that develops in the context of oppression and subjugation and exploitation, and that has been just kind of ingested and deployed by the very people who were the primary victims of that type of thinking.
1: Yeah. So what's your recommendation about these classic texts? You were leading the core curriculum at Columbia University for a long time you are a defender of relevance of the ideas of people from Socrates and Augustine to Gandhi, to a young, very diverse generation of Americans. How should we be defending the relevance of these ideas and what does that mean for how universities should act, how all of us should act?
2: Yeah. One can begin by recognizing that the present has a past. That is, that the categories, the institutions, the ethical norms, the political procedures, the economic structure of society, all that has a history. And understanding that history is the most empowering kind of education to alter, to intervene in, to adapt the current world. And to understand that past means looking at its sources and its sources are sometimes called the classics, sometimes called great books. And, you know, this doesn't only mean poetry. It also means, you know, documents and it means debates and it means philosophical treatises. But there is a whole kind of humanist tradition of debate, of expression, of artistic exploration that lies at the foundation of our society. And that the best way to educate a human being to be a conscious, effective agent in our society is to acquaint them with that history. And there are no better tools than the tradition that's associated with classics. Now, it's a tradition that we're always revising. We're always discovering new classics. We're always finding new ways of reading them. We're always discovering new questions and new information that contextualizes what they mean. All of that is, is salutary and necessary and part of what the classics, in fact, prompt and give an occasion for. So defending the classics means defending a kind of education that takes seriously the idea that the present has emerged from the past. And I think we don't need very elaborate and theoretically complex arguments to see that. Now, the most important and powerful way to do that beyond arguing is to expose students to it. That is, if you put this history, if you put this text before students and get them to talk about it, and you talk about them, their power and their relevance becomes quite evident and quite obvious. I always say that the most effective way of arguing for liberal education is to do liberal education. It is an experiential thing. It's like you don't get the power of a novel by reading the plot summary. You just have to read the novel. And same goes with liberal education. If we in higher education universities, and of course, a lot of my book is concerned with this question about universities' failure to educate students in this tradition of learning of humanist thought, If we in higher education put that in front of our students, kind of the work in some ways happens on its own. If we get students reading these texts and talking about them in small discussion based seminars, the work of transformation that that process triggers happens. I see it happening in my classroom with high school students from low income backgrounds. I see it happening in my college classes with Columbia students, some of whom are low income, some of whom are as high income as you can get. Engaging in the kinds of human conversations that pertain to us and matter to us by virtue of that shared humanity doing so around texts that have a proven record of stimulating and capturing this kind of thought that does it that really does it roosevelt thanks so much for coming on the podcast it's my pleasure josh Thank you for having me here